Psalm 79 this evening as we continue our journey together in the book of Psalms. Psalm 79, the backdrop or setting it seems very clearly is most likely after the invasion uh, of Jerusalem uh, by the Babylonian Empire and the destruction of both the city of Jerusalem as well as the leveling and the destruction of the temple as well. If you remember during the time of the divided kingdom, when uh, Israel was divided into the northern kingdom, the north ten tribes, and the southern kingdom, which was referred to as Judah, uh, what happened at first uh, was the northern kingdom went into uh, sort of being conquered and, and invaded by the Assyrian Empire, and they sought to try and conquer the southern kingdom as well. God didn't permit that to happen, but God kept continuing to caution the southern kingdom of Judah that they would not continue to walk in the same pattern of sins uh, that their brothers and sisters in the northern kingdom were. And God had cautioned them, warned them, sent them prophet after prophet, trying to speak into their lives, saying, look, uh, if you don't learn this lesson of the history of the nation in the north, uh, you are destined to repeat it. And sadly, though God cautioned and warned the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, they disregarded the word of the Lord that came to them. They persisted in the same sins and idolatry and really just disregard of the word of God and walking in God's ways. And ultimately, as the Babylonians came to power, they conquered and became the next world empire. And ultimately, the southern kingdom fell to the Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And when they came in, uh, they were quite ruthless. They leveled the city, they burnt the city, they did the same to the temple of God and stole all the articles out of it and set it ablaze as well. Uh, and ultimately took, remember, the southern kingdom of Judah uh, captive, and the, and the southern kingdom of uh, Judah went into Babylonian captivity for a 70-year period, and that would be the consequence. The judgment God had told them would come to pass that for 70 years, uh, really, it's almost as if God gave them over to what they wanted. They had fallen into great idolatry, so God let them co be conquered by a pagan nation that was full of idolatry. And God said, you want idolatry? Uh, I'll let you try idolatry. I'll bring you to the land of idolatry, to the land of idols for 70 years. Uh, and God let them, in a sense, really reap the consequences of really their own actions and their choices to kind of purge their system from ever wanting to do such thing again. And But great defeat and really great destruction came. And it seems that Psalm 79 has that as the setting. The setting really being the invasion of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, the destruction of the city and the temple, which took place around 586 B.C. And it seems this is what the psalmist is describing in his sentiments here. He begins by saying, notice, O God, the nations have come into, notice he calls it your inheritance. And that would make sense because the land was God's, it was God's inheritance, God chose to give the land to the Jewish people. Uh, they, were, they were the tenants in God's land. That land of Palestine was God's land because God, the whole, God says the whole world is mine, Psalm 50. Uh, so God gave them that land. The Bible is very clear from the time of Abraham that God chose to give that land to the Jewish people. But because they were tenants and the land ultimately belongs to God and God gave it to them to allow them to be there, when they disobeyed God, God pushed them out of the land. 
And God kicked them out of his inheritance. But here, the psalmist remembers this. He says, oh God, the nations, they've come in as invaders into your inheritance. And notice, into your holy temple, they have defiled. And that's what they did. They came in and they defiled the temple of God. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps or ruins. They just came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jewish people. He says, verse 2, describing more of this, the dead bodies of your servants, they had put many to death in a brutal way. They have given as food for the birds of the heaven, a picture of birds of prey like vultures and so forth, coming down and feeding upon the corpses of the people after the invasion. The flesh of your saints have been given to the beasts of the earth. Their blood they have shed like water. That's a picturesque description. I mean, we've noticed very vivid here. Their blood, he says, they've shed like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. And understand, to a Jew, particularly in an ancient culture, that was a horrible disgrace. To not be able to bury your dead to them was a huge dishonor. Uh, to be having so many people slaughtered and so many people lying around and literally their carcasses being fed upon by the beasts of the field and the birds of prey before they could adequately bury them because so many had been put to death and then so many others had been taken away into captivity, drawn away as slaves to the land of Babylon. He says th there was no one even to bury them. They won't even be able to give the dignity to bury their loved ones properly. So this was a great dishonor, a great disgrace. And these verses are just meant to, to show really the vividness of the horrible consequences that came upon the nation because the nation turned away from God. And this is the picture. And if you want to see even more further description, I mean, read the book of Lamentations in the Old Testament and other places like this that describe the horrible carnage and the destruction that came upon the land, upon the people, upon the worship system of God's people. And again, why? Because they chose to turn away from God. You know, whenever any nation chooses to turn away from God, they bring their own doom upon themselves. It's like the Roman Empire. You know, so many other world empires were conquered, conquered, conquered. The Roman Empire was never conquered. The Roman Empire was so corrupt it literally deteriorated and fell in upon itself from the inside out because they had become so uh, you know, carnal and evil in the things that they were doing. They literally just fractured and fell apart as a nation. Uh, and such can be truly really of any nation. And really, as I watch what our nation is doing, I wonder in some ways if that will be the demise of our own country. You know, it is very eerie and yet very real when you read the Old Testament and you read prophecy, you realize that there really seems to be no mention clearly in the word of God, clear mention of other nations by name, Persia and Israel. I mean, there, there are plenty of other nations that are mentioned very clearly by name. You don't find the United States of America in prophecy. In the last days, you see no clear reference. And again, it's not like God didn't know this wonderful nation, which we do live in as a wonderful nation. It's not like God didn't know when he was recording the word of God that our nation was going to come into existence. God knows everything. God doesn't only know the beginning and the end. The Bible says God is the beginning and the end. 
God's known from the first descendant on the earth, which is Adam, all the way to the very end. And every people, group, family, marriage, nation that would all come into existence. He knows the rise and the fall of nations. And and we find this very eerie reality that there is no seeming presence of the United States of America. What does that mean? Could mean a number of things. Could be because there are a lot of believers in this nation that perhaps the rapture of the church is going to happen and a good percentage of our country will disappear. That would be really wonderful. (laughs) But it also could indicate that we are so weak or broken or like the nation of Israel, which we tend to run in a very parallel line to many ways, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and a lot of parallels to our own country. It could be that we are going to become so defiled and corrupt and fracture and fall apart from within that really we will just dismantle or like the nation of Israel, maybe we're going to be conquered by a foreign nation and, and our back is going to be broken. And because of our corruption or our rejection of supporting the nation of Israel, that God ultimately is going to pull back his hand of blessing in some ways and protection over our country. And despite how strong we think we are, our strength is nothing if we turn away from God. It's absolutely nothing. Uh, and, and here we see this very sad demise of the nation of Israel during that time when they were conquered. He says, verse four, we have become, he says, a reproach to all of our neighbors. That is the surrounding nations looking upon Israel, a scorn and a derision that is a mockery to those who are around us. And remember, they were supposed to be a witness. Israel was supposed to be a light to the other nations. Many people in the days of the time of Israel's real glory and splendor, the days of Solomon, people would come from afar, remember? I mean, the Queen of Sheba and people would come from, you know, 900 miles away and they would come to the nation of Israel because they were amazed at this nation that had Jehovah God as its Lord and they saw the splendor and the blessing it had brought upon the nation. But by the same token, now this nation that was so admired by so many other of its surrounding neighboring nations all around them. Now they're an utter mockery. Now they're a reproach. People mock and scoff at that same nation because of its fall. Now the psalmist here expresses his heart. Again, he knows that they are experiencing really the consequence of their own sin. That's not in question in the psalm. The psalmist is not disputing at all. Why has this happened to us? He knows why it's happened to them. That was evident. He's not disputing it was their own error. It was their own mistakes. And they're reaping the consequences of sin, just like we can in our own personal lives. And the same is true, right? If we turn away from the Lord, we make sinful decisions. We behave in in wrong ways. We are going to reap what we sow. It's just a natural reality of something, a law that God has set in order. If you sow to the spirit, you reap good things. You sow to the flesh, the Bible says you reap corruption. And sin has consequences. And in the same way, you know, we can devastate and bring great damage into our own lives, just like the nation was destroyed and suffering and there was bloodshed and carnage. And we can do that with our own lives, with our families. We all know that. Some agree, some of us have experience that in our own lives and then the reproach right the shame and the embarrassment that comes from sin so we can relate to these things personally and whether it's an individual or whether it's a nation this is how we all feel then ultimately when we're suffering the discipline maybe if you would or the judgment of our sin this is our cry verse five how long lord lord how long is this going to last 
Lord, this is, is not pleasant. How, will you be angry forever? Lord, we know we've offended you. But Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy, interesting, God, recognizing that God is jealous for his people. And will your jealousy burn like fire? He says, verse six, pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. For they have noticed, this was their error, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, those who did come in and conquer God's people, the nation of Israel, they have devoured Jacob, which is a reference to Israel, and laid waste his dwelling place. Now, that was indeed true. So the psalmist's plea is, Lord, how long is, is, our, is our consequence going to last? And that's what we all, we all ask. And, and, you know, I can tell you what the answer is to that, as long as it's appropriate. That's God's prerogative, Right? The punishment lasts as long as the parent deems is appropriate, right? My, my children at times did things where I had to discipline or punish them for wrongdoing at times. There was never any set schedule. They always wanted a set schedule. There was no system. The system was whatever dad deemed appropriate. The buck stops here. You're punished. This is what the consequence is. And I'll let you know what the terms are, when, if there's going to be mercy in the process. And, and a lot of that had to do quite honestly, and we would talk about this as a teachable opportunity as they were growing up. A lot of that sometimes depended upon how they responded after their error. Was there genuine repentance? Did I see heart change or did I see just a stubborn anger that they got caught? And well, if that's the case, then it's going to be a little longer because until that spirit changes, uh, the the, the pressure is still going to be on because ultimately you're not doing it to be punitive, right? You're doing it to be developmental. You want to help them and you want to get them to not repeat the same patterns. And so how long is as long as God deems appropriate? And, and what's necessary is different in different situations. But the psalmist's heartache was, he says, Lord, they've become so severe upon us. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, these nations that didn't even know God, and that's what was hard. Lord, they don't even know you. And yet they've been used as your tool and your instrument. And God used these foreign nations to come in and really to be kind of the chastening rod to bring punishment against his own people. And he says, these kingdoms that do not even call on your name, they've devoured us and laid waste, he says, our dwelling place. The idea is they were overly severe and harsh. And this is where God would deal with them. The Babylonians and the Assyrians and the other nations at times that God would allow to be his tool to bring discipline upon the nation of Israel, they would go overboard in their severity. And their cruelty and their harshness was so out of bounds in the cruelty of their treatment that ultimately this prayer does get answered and then God brings severe judgment upon them because they went above and beyond in their severity. And they, they took things too far and actually devoured people and put to death innocent people in just horrible ways. And God would ultimately hold them account for that, even as God will hold any nation in account for doing such things and atrocities and treating people in horrible ways uh, that, that God as the creator does not approve of. He says, verse 8, oh, do not remember. Notice now he's asking, God, don't remember our former iniquities against us. God, I'm not disputing it's our former iniquities that have brought these circumstances that are not pleasant. Please, Lord, he's, he's asking now for, in a repentant way, for mercy. Don't remember, don't call to mind anymore our former iniquities. Again, it's not as if God can't 
remember something in the sense that God can forget something. He's God. He's all-knowing. When the Bible speaks about he doesn't remember our iniquities anymore, the literal concept there is he chooses not to think upon such things. That is, he makes a, a conscious decision as God to no longer look upon, think about, or treat us in regards to what we did wrong. That's the idea. And so he says, Lord, please don't remember, don't think upon or relate to us in regards to our former iniquities. But he says, verse eight, let your tender mercies. And that's wonderful. Not just mercy, but God's also tender. What a wonderful thing. A holy, righteous, awesome, all-powerful God who is a great judge. But yet at the same time, the Bible portrays him as full of mercy. And not just mercy, but tender mercies. That is, God has a tender heart. He has a father, a father's heart. And there's a tenderness to that. And again, I can totally relate to that. You know, you, you, when, you, when you discipline your kids, I mean, no healthy, normal father enjoys that, right? I mean, they never understand this hurts me more than it hurts you. We heard our dad say that. And so, well, I don't want to get out. It's not working to me. It feels like it hurts me a lot more. And then we say the same thing to our kids because once you have a child and you love them and you, you know, just the last thing you want to do is punish them. And, and there's that tender part of your heart that as soon as you can, you, know, you, you want to bring mercy back into the situation and you're inclined to be that way out of the love you have. Well, again, God has a perfect heart. And if we who are evil, Jesus said, know how to treat and give good gifts and do good things to our children as earthly fathers and parents, he said, how much more will your heavenly father have that kind of you know, good fatherly attitude. So again, how wonderful to know that in the midst of you know, maybe sin and consequences that go on, that God has tender mercies, that he's tender and he's merciful. And if we are repentant and humble and broken, he says, Lord, let your tender mercies speedily meet us. Please, Lord, speed up the mercy. <laughs> Lord, bring on the tenderness. Please meet us with your tender, merciful heart. For he says, verse eight, we have been brought very low. Lord, the, the idea is, Lord, we have been severely humbled. This is humiliating. Brought severely low. And sometimes God will let a people be brought severely low, very low. Sometimes God will let us be brought very low. If that's what it takes to, to, to purge us from something, he'll let us be greatly humbled and bring us very low the cry verse 9 help us O god of our salvation for the glory of your name lord we're asking you to help us to get us beyond this notice for your glory that you might demonstrate that you're a great savior despite the fact of our sin for the glory of your name he says verse 9 and deliver us that is deliver us out of these consequences and provide atonement for our sins for your namesake. The idea of atonement is to appease wrath or to, to make atonement or payment for something. Of course, ultimately, God did this completely in our Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, there was the blood of bulls and goats that would temporarily cover sin, which basically would sort of turn away God's wrath temporarily, but then there was always the need for another sacrifice after the next failure, and there was that constant process. And the, the New Testament says the blood of bulls and goats couldn't, however, take away sin. But the wonderful thing is in Jesus, the Bible tells us the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, that his redemptive blood made atonement, the New Testament term used as propitiation, big word, which basically means it satisfies the wrath of God, the payment. It's a satisfactory payment 
to take away the wrath of God completely and to remove our sins from us so that the stain's not there. It's not just hidden. The New Testament teaches the stain is removed, not just that, that there's kind of something hiding, but your sin's still there. That's the wrong thing that we do in our head sometimes. We know our past sins, we know our present struggles, and we think our forgiveness is, well, it's kind of like there's kind of just like, you know, a, throw a blanket over all the toys on the floor, and it's all still there, but you just can't see it. Or pull the curtain in front of the shower so you don't see all the dirty, scummy shower behind, just nobody wants to see it. Well, that, that's, that's not how it is. It's not that God just kind of covered your sin. God cleansed your sin. From God's perspective, there is no guilt there anymore. You shouldn't feel guilt anymore. You should feel guilt when you do it. You should feel strong conviction when it happens. But God doesn't want you to live, if you're trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ, in perpetual guilt complex. Because that's not fully receiving the gracious gift of forgiveness God's offered. God sees you washed, cleansed. The Bible uses the term removed. His wrath is removed, and that stain and that sin is removed. That's the glorious efficacy we talk about the efficiency the efficacy of the work of jesus christ and here the psalmist realizes only god can provide this lord we've sinned against you and please lord we can't provide atonement for our sins it's not sufficient would you provide atonement for our sins and that's what god ultimately did he provided atonement for our sins completely in christ he says verse 10 why should the nation say where is their god that is mocking them. I thought these people had a God that took care of them. Look at them. Their city is ruined, their nation and their temple is destroyed. Let there be known among the nations in our sight the avenging of the blood of your servants, which has been shed. And he says, verse 11, let the groaning of the prisoner come before you according to the greatness of your power. He says, God, preserve those who are appointed to die and return to our neighbor sevenfold. The idea is fullness, sevenfold, the number of, of completeness. There are seven days in a week, seven notes in a scale. Sevenfold, Lord, return completely to our neighbors into their bosom, their reproach with which they have reproached you. Lord, they're not ultimately mocking and reproaching us. They're reproaching you because we're your children and we represent you. So, Lord, they're ultimately reproaching you. I love how he asks, however, in verse 11, Lord, according to the greatness of your power, preserve those who are appointed to die. What a great statement. Or those who are, are on the path to death and destruction, again, whether that's physically, morally, spiritually, those appointed to die, he says, Lord, preserve them by your power. Lord, intervene and bring preservation. Don't let them be destroyed. I think that's a great prayer to pray sometimes. You see someone who's appointed to death or destruction and it seems that death is absolutely certain it's on the calendar for them to realize that according to the greatness of god's power he can intervene god can preserve a life god can do something to make preservation come to pass and to stop death and destruction from happening he says verse 13 concluding so we your people are the sheep of your pasture that's a great illustration because what the sheep do they wander. And that's what the psalmist knew. They, Lord, we're just sheep. That's our problem. We're not very smart, Lord. We're just the sheep of your pasture. And we've wandered. We've gotten lost. Lord, we will give you thanks forever. We will show forth your praise 
to all generations. Lord, when you come and rescue us like a good shepherd and bring these sheep back into right relationship with you, he says, Lord, we will thank you and we will praise you and let others around us see that you are worthy of such. Psalm 80, he says, notice, beginning, that it is, give ear, O shepherd of Israel. And that's very fitting because the prior psalm concluded with, we are your people and the sheep of your pasture. Now here's a reference to God as the shepherd of Israel. And this seems to be a psalm regarding the cry for the northern kingdom, because you'll notice that there are references in the first few verses to Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. These are some of the, again, Ephraim, Manasseh, the tribes in the northern area, the stronger, larger tribes. So he says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph. And at times that was a name used synonymously as well in the Old Testament to describe Israel. The You who lead Joseph, Like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, he says, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your strength and come and save us. So it's a cry asking for God to intervene, to show his strength and to bring deliverance, it seems I said, to the northern kingdom at that time. And what a contrast is you talk about, you know, God has so many different uh, attributes and and the wonderful thing that I love about God himself and just the way that God works is is God always works in balance and I think the way of the Lord always is is the way of balance not extremes whenever we find ourselves going to extremes doctrinally or in the way that we respond to things you know and that's where we tend to get off track as we, we go to extremes we carry things to excess right you can go to an extreme in grace and abuse grace and the Bible speaks about using you know, grace as a license for permission to just sin and do whatever you want. And then you also can carry, uh, you know, truth and justice to a, to a super strong extreme where there's no love and there's no compassion. And it's all about, well, well, just the letter of the law. And, and then all of a sudden now you're living under the law and legalism rather than understanding grace and love and compassion. And, and extremes always get us in trouble. And God is the master of balance. And think about it. The greatest demonstration of God's balance is what? Jesus. Because God gave, came, and how did he manifest himself? He manifested himself as fully God and fully man at the same time. Jesus took upon himself Having deity, a divine nature, he took upon himself a second nature of humanity, and he was the God-man. That's the greatest balance you can get. Fully God, fully man, mingled together in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we have this beautiful description of God. Notice verse 1, as first of all, he calls him the shepherd of Israel who led his people like a flock. A shepherd. We see God represented as a shepherd, Psalm 23, in other places in the New Testament, Jesus calls himself, right, the, the good shepherd. Peter talks about him as the chief, you know, shepherd and the overseer of our souls. And, and if you know anything about the work of a shepherd and what a shepherd is, it wasn't a real glamorous job. Uh, uh, shepherds deal with sheep and sheep are dumb and difficult and problematic and they get lost easily and they're very needy creatures and they need constant attention whether they're getting you know bugs and parasitic problems or they're rolling over and now they're in a cast position and they're going to lay there and bloat and die unless you get over and flip them back over because they're cast down on their backs and they're not actually smart or agile enough to roll back to their feet once they roll into their back and and, and sheep 
you know, are, are, need constant, continual care to be fed, to be led, to be guided, to be protected. I mean, they're, shepherding work really in that day, it was more than blue collar. I mean, it was roll up your sleeves, get down and dirty out in the field kind of work. That, that was the, the life of a shepherd. And so it's a picture of really a very rather humble, uh, you know, laborious, servant-oriented type thing. And he calls God the shepherd of Israel. Here is almighty God. And yet he leads his people like a shepherd tirelessly, feeding his people, guiding his people, caring for his people, protecting his people, lovingly getting them out of trouble, seeking them out when they're lost. I mean, all the things that a shepherd would do for his sheep. And this is what God would do, lead his people, Israel, like a flock. This very humble, beautiful, servant-oriented picture of God, this powerful God. And then the second half of the verse, he describes God, you want to talk about balance, as the powerful God who dwells between the cherubim. That is the angelic beings. Again, in the Old Testament, remember in the temple, on the ark, there was the two cherubim, which were were angels, or symbols of, of angels, cherubim or angels, and the manifestation of the presence of God dwelt there between the cherubim. And all of that in the ark, if you remember, I mean, the whole tabernacle and temple thing, that was all a prototype or a picture of what really exists to some degree in the eternal dimension. So in the same way God's presence was manifest over the ark between the cherubim in the Holy of Holies, the rear room of the temple, God in heaven, the eternal heavens, literally dwells between in the midst of the cherubim and the seraphim and all the angelic beings as almighty God reigning upon his throne, shining with all of his glory. So he portrays God as this shepherd and then this powerful ruling, mighty king and judge dwelling among the angelic beings, shining in all of his radiant glory And he says, verse two, Lord, stir up your strength. He's saying, God, show your muscle. Stir up your strength, God. You know what's going on and come and save us. His cry, verse three, restore us, O God, cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. Now, you'll notice as we go through the psalm, or if you did read ahead, that refrain, verse three there, is repeated three times in the same psalm. So again, I bring to your attention, God is into at times repetition. God restates the exact same thing. In fact, in the exact same psalm. I mean, I would love to see something. God, what are you doing? You already said that. Why are you saying it again? Because you need to hear it again. It's important. You know, repetition, repetition. Three times the Holy Spirit prompts the psalmist to plead with God in this way again is there anything wrong with praying the same thing more than once apparently not because here's another place in the word of god where verse three look at verse seven same exact statement if you look further down in the psalm you find the exact same statement again the last verse verse 19 so verse three verse seven verse 19 the psalmist repeats the exact same prayer because it was very important to him this was the real crux uh, of his cry unto the lord and what is it restore us O god in other words bring us back to our former condition right when you restore a car that's what you do you're basically doing a process to bring something back to its former beautiful original condition 
when something gets damaged, defiled, ruined, whatever, deterioration, it needs to be restored. And lives sometimes need to be restored. People sometimes need to be restored. Relationships sometimes need to be restored. Churches may need to be restored because sin defiles us from our original glorious condition to different degrees. And sometimes this is a right prayer. Lord, we're praying for restoration. Restore us, Lord. Please restore us back to our former condition. Restore us back to a previous state when we were blessed. He says, cause your face to shine. The idea is God's face shining with pleasure. It's the opposite of God frowning upon us or God turning away from us and looking away from us, we want the face of God shining upon us like a parent who's proud or like a grandparent whose face just you know lights up when they see their grandkids. This is the idea. God calls your face to shine upon us, smile upon us, Lord, that you're pleased and you might restore us. And he says, and if you do that, we shall be saved from whatever it is we need to be saved from. And there are many things that apply there, Lord, only if you restore us, only if you shine your smile upon us once again, are we ever going to be saved from this condition? It's the only way, Lord. Oh, Lord God of hosts, again, here's that sentiment. How long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? Lord, it feels that you're angry with us, that we've offended you, that you don't want to hear our prayers. Sometimes we feel like that. He says, verse five, you have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in great measure. The idea is there had been great mourning, a a life filled with tears and sadness, weeping because of things that had been done and that had gone wrong. You have made us a strife to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. So our neighbors dislike us, our enemies, they mock at us, they ridicule and laugh at us. Again, the prayer again, verse seven, in case God didn't hear the first time. No, he knew God heard, but it mattered to him, right? This this really mattered. So he had no problem repeating it because it was a plea of his heart. Restore us, O God of hosts. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. You have brought, he says, a vine out of Egypt and have cast out the nations and planted it and prepared room for it. So now he refers to the nation of Israel as a vine. And if you look at Isaiah chapter five, there's great description there. Isaiah five verses one through seven. It pictures in the symbolic way, the nation of Israel, like a vine, a vine that God uprooted from where it was and replanted it somewhere in a different place. And the intention of a plant or a vine is to do what? To bear fruit to be fruitful. That's what God wanted for the nation of Israel. They were a vine unto God. He was the vine dresser and they were supposed to bear spiritual fruit. And God did everything possible for them to help them to be able to be as fruitful as possible. That's what his intention was. Look what he says. You brought that vine out of Egypt. Remember they were there enslaved. You cast out the nations that is of the land of Canaan And then you planted us there. You prepared room that as you planted and prepared the ground, you did everything possible. You caused it to take root. God helped the nation to take root. You filled the land with it. Then the hills were covered with its shadow, the mighty cedars with its boughs. And she, that's the vine, the nation of Israel at one point, sent out her boughs 
to the sea, that is all the way out to the Mediterranean Sea, and her branches to the river. So he describes how the nation was like a vine. God prepared and planted and put it in the right place, and God did everything possible to give it the best possible chance to bear fruit. God's a good gardener, and he says, God, you, the fault's not on you. The fact that we've become defiled and unfruitful is our problem. And I love the psalmist's heart here, just the honesty and the humility. God, you did everything possible to give us the best chance to succeed. And God always does, right? He says, you planted us, you prepared it, you helped us to take root, you caused us to bear fruit and be flourishing for a time as a nation spiritually. And that's what the nation of Israel did. Now, it is interesting, and just as a New Testament tie to this quickly, remember, that's why Jesus in, in John chapter 15 When he's speaking about himself, he says, I am the, remember what he says, true vine. See, because the nation of Israel had failed in its responsibility to bear fruit spiritually for God. And the system had become barren and unfruitful spiritually. And so Jesus said, look, you're not going to find spiritual fruitfulness. You're not going to flourish in the ways of the broken system of the spiritual leaders of Israel and the organized, established religious system and Judaism, he says, you're not going to find spiritual fruitfulness there. Where you'll find spiritual fruitfulness is, is remaining in relationship with me. I'm the true vine, and my father's the gardener. He says, and he who abides in me will bear much fruit. Again, it's as we abide in Jesus, we experience great fruitfulness and are able to flourish spiritually. That's really what we're to do. He's the vine, we're the branches. We stay connected to him. But the nation had not been fruitful. So he says, verse 12, why have you broken down her hedges so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? That is, they were being taken advantage of, robbed and ripped off. They were plucking the fruit from the nation. The nation would seek to excel and other nations were just continuing to conquer it. And again, this is the picture here of being taken advantage of, being robbed, being oppressed, Someone doing what is, you know, taking from you what's not rightfully theirs. And time to time we experience that, do we not, from ungodly people? They they rob us, they pass by, they take away what would be good from us. The boar out of the woods uproots it, tears it up. A wild beast of the field devours it. He cries, verse 14, return, we beseech you, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see and visit this vine. Lord, please. Come visit this vine, bring renewal, he's saying, Lord. If you don't look down and you don't come down from heaven, then this vine is never going to bear fruit at all. And the vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch which you made strong for yourself, Lord, you had made us strong, but yet we've weakened ourselves, the idea is. It has been burned with fire, it's cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Again, perhaps a a reflection there of referencing to Jesus, the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Only through Jesus can real spiritual renewal and fruitfulness come into any life. Then he says, verse 18, God, if you visit and come down from heaven, then we will not turn back from you. The idea is we'll we'll turn back into right relationship. Revive us and we will call upon your name. Again, verse 19, the third time, restore us, O Lord God of hosts, cause your face to shine 
and we shall be saved. I love the plea there in verse 18, revive us and we will call upon your name. That's a picture of spiritual fruitfulness again. Again, to revive something means bringing something back to life that once was alive but had died. Again, this is not awakening something for the first time to experience life. This is revival. It's, it's, it's viving something that was once alive, but it died. Revive, bringing life back to something, restoring life back, that, that it would be there once again. And that spiritually is a picture of what we need from time to time as the people of God. We need to be revived. Life that was there, fruitfulness that was there, vitality spiritually that was once there that God prepared and made possible. And maybe there was spiritual flourishing, but things have happened and, and things have died off and waned off and there's not fruitfulness. And what we need is that God would look upon us and visit us from heaven and revive us. He says, and if you revive us, we will call upon your name. That's the result of revival. That's the evidence, you might say, of revival. How do you know when spiritual revivals happen? Because people start to call upon the name of the Lord. People start looking to God, seeking God in brand new and fresh ways. Well, let's quickly go through Psalm 81 before we turn back to worship. The psalmist here is calling people to join him in praise. Sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob, he says. Raise a song and strike the timbrel that has used the instruments the pleasant harp and the lute celebrate God with me. He says, blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon. Now that term trumpet there in verse three is a reference to the shofar, that ram's horn that they would use from time to time. And it seems the setting of this could be, obviously it's one of the feasts. Notice he says at the full moon on our solemn feast day. Now, we don't know what feast day this is. There are many feasts the nation of Israel celebrated where for weeks at a time, a whole week at a time, they would just spend a week worshiping God and fellowshipping and gathering together. I mean, they were national religious holidays that they would celebrate. For he says, for this is a statute for Israel, a law of the God of Jacob. This he established in Joseph as a testimony when he went throughout the land of Egypt where I heard a language I did not understand. The idea is the Egyptian speaking as he went through the land of Egypt. It was a foreign language. But again, whether this is the feast of Passover, whether this is the feast of Pentecost, I tend to believe, many tend to believe it could be a reference to the feast of Tabernacles, one of those mandatory feasts because of the description here of the, new, the full moon and the feast day, some of the things that are referenced and also there's an indication here in verse four where he talks about a statute for Israel and a law of the God of Jacob. He makes reference to the, to the Old Testament law and it being tied together with this feast. And we do know from Deuteronomy, I believe me, 31, and forgive me if I'm off on the address there. Um, you can check me and tell in advance in case I'm wrong, but it's in Deuteronomy. But I believe 31, it, it, we're told there that every seven years, when the Feast of Tabernacle was celebrated, they would actually read through, it seems, the entirety of the book of Deuteronomy. It's a reference to reading all of the law. And they would incorporate greatly the reading of the word of God 
together with the people as they had this great feast and celebration celebrating God's faithfulness to them and his preservation of his people as the Feast of Tabernacle did. And so it could be that this is probably what's being referred to here. And the psalmist is saying, look, let's celebrate, blow that shofar, blow that trumpet, and let's make a joyful shout to God and raise a song. Let's worship and celebrate God's faithfulness. The idea here is like a harvest festival, a celebration of the faithfulness of God. Now, verse 6, it seems to describe here God talking about what he did for his people when they were in Egypt. Remember, he went through the land of Egypt, verse 6, and what did God do in Egypt? He removed his shoulder from the burden. Remember the burden of being slaves? I removed his shoulder from the burden, and his hands were freed from the baskets, the making of labor baskets. You called in trouble, God says, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder, and then I tested you or developed your character, he says, at the waters of Meribah. What a great description of what God does. We call upon him in trouble, and he delivers us. That's what we do with the nation of Israel. They were in trouble. They were being enslaved. They were being mistreated. They were under a great burden. Their hands were tied. There was nothing they could do. They were stuck in a situation. They were being cruelly mistreated. And in their trouble, they called out in trouble and the Lord answered and delivered them. And it says here, verse six, he removed the shoulder from the burden and the hands were freed. So God can take burdens off our shoulders. Aren't you glad about that? You know, maybe tonight you have a great burden upon you and it's weighing down. That's what burdens do. God can take the burden off. God can free your hands if you feel tied into something. He did it for Israel. He can do it for us. Verse 8, hear, O my people, he says, and I will admonish you. Listen up, God says, O Israel, if you will listen to me. There shall no longer be a foreign God among you. Again, God brought great deliverance, right? He delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. All God's saying is, look, I delivered you in your trouble. I took you out from under the burdens that you were under. I set you free. I untied and unshackled your hands from the things you were stuck in. So God says, all I'm asking is for one thing. Can you just give me your heart? I don't want your money. I don't want your work. I don't need your slavery. But he says, I do want your allegiance. Can you just give me your heart? He says here, hear my people. There shall be no foreign God among you. What's that idolatry? Again, giving our attention and, and our full allegiance to something other than God. Nor shall you worship any foreign God, any created thing. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. God says, I don't want you turning to foreign gods and letting them satisfy what you want. I don't want you turning to pagan things and worldly systems and looking to that as the way to get your help and supply what you need and take care of you. God says, I delivered you. You belong to me. I'll take care of you, <laughs> right? God says, I redeemed you. I purchased you. I'm your father. Can you let me keep parenting you? I gave birth to you. I started all this in your life. So God says, look, don't turn to other things. God says, how about like a little tiny bird that's desperate in the nest and waiting for the mother to return with a little worm to drop in its mouth? God says, open wide your mouth and I'll fill it. 
look, he, he puts kind of the responsibility upon us as his people, and then he says he'll perform his part. He says, your responsibility, my responsibility, is to open ourselves up to God. Independence, in reliance, opening our mouth in prayer, and then opening our mouth in expectation, that is to, for God to feed, to satisfy, to supply whatever it is that we need. As we cry out, and God says, you open wide. Notice, not just open your mouth, open it wide, God says. If you open it wider, I can put more in there, right? <laughs> because if your mouth's closed off, and he says, and you close yourself off, then I, I can't supply what you need. But if you open wide your mouth, he says, his promise, I will fill it. Now, sometimes, perhaps, it's because we don't open ourselves up to God completely. God doesn't fill and supply and do some of maybe what he could have done because we didn't expectantly look to him or, or, or open ourselves to him in faith and prayer and truly looking to him and depending upon him instead of going and turning to other things. He says, verse 11, notice, but my people would not heed my voice. That's not opening yourself up to God, not listening to God. My people would not heed my voice. Israel would have none of me. So notice, to not listen to God's voice or to not listen to God's word is to, in essence, reject God personally. That's what he says. My people would not heed my voice, therefore they would have none of me. If you don't listen to God's voice, if you don't listen to God's word, technically you're, that's a way of rejecting God. So I, what did God do, verse 12? I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own Councils. In other words, if you want to be stubborn and reject me, you want to walk in your own counsel, that is your own ideas, your own solutions, your own counsels, God says, if you think you know better for your life than I do according to my word and my voice, then God says, I'll let you try that. I'll let you walk in your own ideas and, and I'll let you have your own stubborn way if you want to have a stubborn heart against me. And I'll tell you, look at verse 12. I gave them over their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. Let me just say, that is probably one of the worst things that we can bring upon our lives. Is to become stubborn and shut off to God and God's voice and God's ways and basically have God say, okay, if you want to be stubborn, I'll give you what you want. Go ahead. If that's really what you want, I will. Anytime God gives people in stubbornness what they want, whether nationally or personally, it's always a disaster. And read Romans chapter one, the very root, the Bible teaches, the word of God teaches. God says the very root of homosexual behavior is God giving people own over to their own lustful, perverse desires. And then bringing the consequences upon their own selves, their, the damaging effects. And there are many damaging effects that go with those who live in that lifestyle as a practice because it's not God's original design. It is a struggle of temptation to sin, just like heterosexual sin, just like pride, just like addictive substance abuse, pride, anger, anything else. That's all it is. It's just another struggle with wrong desires. But when people stubbornly pers persist and want to walk in their own counsels, no, I know what's right. I, I, I know what's right for myself. Then, then it says in Romans chapter 1, ultimately God gave them over. That's what it says. Same thing. God gave them over. God says, okay, I'll allow you to do that. And it says that as they did that, they burned in passion for another and they brought consequence upon their own lives. This is always the worst case scenario for God to give us over 
Verse 13, look, look at the, the heartbreak of God. Oh, he says, this is God's sadness. The idea here is when he has to do this with a life. Oh, that my people would listen to me. Boy, is that, I mean, that's the heartbreak of God. Notice he's not just angry. He's grieved. Oh, that my people would listen to me. That Israel, my people, the nation would walk in my ways I would soon subdue their enemies. Again, if we listen to God and walk in God's ways, what does it bring? Victory, deliverance. I would have subdued their enemies, the things that are troubling them and fighting against them. And I would turn my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission to him, but their fate would endure forever. And look how verse 16 ends. Boy, I have all these underlined because the statements here, it says of God, verse 16, he would have fed them also, not just with what they needed, but with the finest of wheat. And with the honey from the rock, God says, I would have satisfied you. Well, you never want to be in a spot where God says, I gave you over to what your stubborn heart wanted. And it's so sad to me because I would have blessed you in a tremendous way if you had just listened. I would have satisfied you in a way that you instead chose to try and falsely satisfy yourself. He says, I would have not just taken care of you, but he says, I would have fed you with the finest. Do we really think God's a, a dysfunctional father that he doesn't want to take good care of his kids? God says, I would have fed you with the finest of wheat. I would have given you the best possible that you could have experienced. And I would have satisfied you with, again, honey from the rock. Again, I never want to be in a place. You never want to be in a place where we hear God say, I would have. The picture there is lost opportunity. Missed opportunity. That when we don't listen to God's voice, when we're stubborn, when we persist in a path that's not God's path, that God says, you lost an opportunity because you wanted what you wanted instead of being open to what I knew was best for you. God says, you lost an opportunity. You missed it. I would have. Boy, we never, ever want to find ourselves in that spot. God, keep us from it. Let's stand together. Let's pray.